welcome back to So As I Was Saying, our first official episode. Happy Friday. And congratulations on making it through your first anatomy lab and through your first week of medical school. Woohoo! First week is tough, man. I know, right? I've, I've even been feeling the stress from this first week starting second year. Same. My sister said to me on the phone on Monday night, you have homework already? Like, yeah, that cliche about the volume and speed of medical school is apparent just in the first few days. Yeah, they really, it, there really is no starting out slow, is there? So for our first years, do you have any advice to offer on um, speed versus efficiency when there's no starting out slow? Yeah, so let's break down week one. It's a lot of information that's packed into this first week. A lot of times it feels like there's three weeks of your undergrad undergrad classes that are packed into this one week. I know this information can come on very quickly, um, but the most important thing is taking these lectures at your own pace. Don't feel guilty for not attending the live lectures. The professors are going to understand why you're not there, and they're not going to hold that against you. Use your time efficiently and take the time you need to go through each one. If you speed up lectures, sometimes you aren't grasping concepts as well as you would if you actually take the time to break them down and understand them yourself. Do what works best for you. Don't judge what you're doing based on your classmates because everyone studies and learns this material differently. I think that's really good advice. Um, so getting into the nitty gritty, let's dive right in. Lab one, you had to identify trapezius, latissimus dorsi, the rhomboids, and levator scapulae. Now, I don't want to sit here and repeat the facts to you that you've heard in your lectures. The point of this podcast is to apply those facts. So let's start with trapezius and its actions. While we talk about muscles here, actually do the actions I'm telling you to do. It's going to feel silly doing it alone while you're listening at home, but I promise it'll end up being like muscle memory. It'll help you remember the actions so much better. It's not uncommon uh, to move your arms and legs about while you're taking your exam. I did it. You look around, you see lots of other people do it. And the best news is now that you're going to be six feet apart while taking your exams, you don't have to worry about hitting your neighbor. So back to trapezius. You heard in lecture that trapezius is responsible for the elevation and depression of the scapula. What does this look like? What do these words mean? Well, shrug your shoulders. Shoulder shrug is a good example of something you're going to be testing in physical exam. If a patient presents with a one-sided shoulder drop and the inability to shrug that shoulder against resistance, you should begin to think about a lesion that affects trapezius. Trapezius is also responsible for lateral flexion, extension, and hyperextension of the neck. You've been studying for a long time. You were staring at your computer in the virtual lab for a while. Your neck is probably stiff, so let's stretch it out. Put your ear to your left shoulder, your ear to your right shoulder, your chin to your chest, chin to the sky. And there, you just did all of the neck motions that trapezius is responsible for. Lastly, trapezius allows you to rotate your head. This one's easy. Just look to the sides over each shoulder. Moving on, latissimus dorsi. First thing it does, adducts the arm. That's adducts. I remember this one by starting an anatomical position and adding my arms back to center. This trick applies for almost every muscle that does adduction, a deduction. The lats also medially rotate the arms at the level of the humerus. So does the chair you're sitting in have armrests? If so, start an anatomical position 
and in a fluid motion, turn your arms in so that your elbows are resting on the armrest and interlock your fingers in front of your torso. This movement is the medial rotation of the arms. Lastly, the lats retract the scapula. If you stick your arms out in front of you like a zombie and then push your shoulders back into the back of your chair and your chest should puff out, this is the same motion you'd do if someone walked by you right now and told you to sit up straight. All right, next on the list, rhomboid major and rhomboid minor. These muscles assist latissimus dorsi in that action of shoulder retraction. If there's a lesion that affects the rhomboids, a patient would present with the scapula on the affected side located further away from midline than the non-affected side. Last on the list, levator scapulae. So let's think back to trapezius and the shoulder shrug. Levator scapulae assists the trapezius in that motion. It also assists trapezius in the lateral flexion of the neck or the movement of putting your ears to your shoulders. Another interesting clinical correlate that pertains to the superficial back muscles is the triangle of auscultation, something else you will become familiar with in physical exam. This area is a triangular area that's bounded by the scapula, trapezius, and latissimus dorsi, and in this area, lung sounds can be heard clearly because there's no muscle that intervenes between the skin and the rib cage. Are you a little sore from all that moving around? Let's think about trigger points. These are discrete, focal, hyper-irritable spots of taut bands of skeletal muscle, usually in the muscles that maintain body posture, like the ones in the neck and the shoulders. They produce myofascial pain syndrome and are treated using injections. So if I wanted to treat a trigger point in levator scapulae, I would have to insert a needle through anything lying superficial to it, or in this case, trapezius. This means there's potential for me to injure cranial nerve 11 or spinal accessory nerve on my way to levator scapulae. Now that you have some clinical ideas about muscles, how should you study muscles? Katie? So basically what it's gonna come down to are four big features that you need to know for just about every muscle that you're going to learn. First, you need to learn the action of the muscle. What is the muscle doing? I, re I recommend doing each of the movements yourself like Mackenzie described in order to fully grasp this concept. Next, you're gonna need to know the nerve supply to each muscle. Question stems will tell you about a nerve that's damaged or an action that can't be performed due to a lack of innervation and you will need to know which muscle is affected or vice versa. Learn the blood supply. Which artery is supplying blood to each muscle? Question stems may ask you which blood supply was disrupted based on a muscle that isn't functioning properly after a car wreck or which muscle is affected based on the blood supply that has been damaged. Finally, I know origin and insertion points can be strenuous to try to remember, but knowing these can be important when, when it comes down to fractures and realizing which muscle is affected in these fractures. These will become more important when we discuss the arm next week. If you know these four big features of each muscle, you're gonna find the questions on this first exam much easier. Spend your time on weekends reviewing the muscles you went over in lab and quizzing yourself or a friend on these four features. I know that the first quiz might've been hard for a lot of you. These are challenging third order questions, but if you know these facts, you will be able to work through each of the exam questions. Let's take a look at an example of a second and third order style question um, that involves the four big features and can be worked through really quickly if you're able to just get through those features. So first we have a patient who presents with shoulder pain and is admitted for surgery. 
During the surgery, the superficial ascending branch of the transverse cervical artery is ligated. Which muscle would become ischemic in this case? Now, if you go through the big facts, starting with the transverse cervical artery, you'll recognize that the transverse cervical artery supplies trapezius. Therefore, if this artery is blocked, trapezius would be affected. You can make this question into a third order question if you ask what action the patient would be unable to do in this case. You'd have to think through the artery that you've been given, what muscle that artery supplies, and then what action that muscle does. And when you get through those points, you should be able to find the answer. So we have another question. This time we have a stab wound that injures the dorsal scapular and spinal accessory nerves. Which muscles would be paralyzed or weakened by these injuries? This is a two-part question. Let's start with the dorsal scapular nerve. What does it innervate? If you answered rhomboid major, you'd be correct. Now spinal accessory nerve, that's trapezius. See how quick you can be? These examples should show you that no matter how a question is asked with the four big facts, you should be able to get to the right answer. So enough with muscles. Let's talk about some clinical relevance associated with neuroanatomy. One of the most important clinical correlates of block one neuroanatomy is the herniated disc. You heard in lecture that a herniated disc is the protrusion of the nucleus pulposus on a nerve root, specifically the nerve root that is one level below the herniation. Let's think about a patient with a herniated disc. What are they going to look like? Well, they'll probably be less than 50 years old and present with radiating back pain that began shortly after heavy lifting. If the disc is in the lumbar region, it will cause sciatica or radicular pain in the lower back and hip that radiates down to the back of the thigh. These patients are going to have decreased reflexes on their lower limb on the affected side. Now you can test this in physical exam using the patellar tendon reflex to assess L2 and L3 or L3 and L4 and the Achilles tendon reflex to test L5 and S1. More to come on that in coming weeks. I use the term here, radicular pain or radiculopathy. What is this? It's compression or inflammation of a nerve root or true spinal nerve that can occur due to narrowing of intervertebral foramen at which a spinal nerve exits. With radicular pain, uh, dermatomes can be helpful for localization of the lesion. Now you should have learned all about dermatomes in class, so let's have a quiz. What spinal nerves would need to be affected for complete cutaneous sensory loss? This would actually require loss of function of all 31 pairs of spinal nerves. And this is because each spinal nerve pair supplies a different dermatome, and some even combine into plexi and have fibers in different dermatomes. Now I wanna go back to the lumbar region for a minute. The same very common level for herniation, L4, L5, is also the site that's used for lumbar puncture in the extraction of CSF or administration of anesthetic. This site is used intentionally for the prevention of hitting the spinal cord. The spinal cord usually ends at the level of L2 in adults and L3 in children, but the dural sac ends at, L2, at S2. So when you're doing a lumbar puncture, you have to think about the layers you would penetrate to get into the dural sac. I suggest looking these layers up and creating a mnemonic for remembering them. Moving right along, we're at the sacrum. I wanna focus on osteology here. If you pull up a picture of the sacrum, the first thing you'll probably notice are the holes running parallel on both sides. What are these? 
the anterior and posterior sacral foramina. What's their point? These are the sites where the ventral and dorsal rami of the sacral spinal nerves exit respectively. Ventral rami exiting in the anterior foramina, foramina and dorsal rami exiting in the posterior foramina. Think of these like the intervertebral spaces in the column above the sacrum. Down the middle of the sacrum runs the sacral canal. Something has to sit in this canal, right? Right. The sacral canal is an extension of the vertebral canal where sacral nerve roots travel. Remember, the cord ends at the level of L2, so sacral nerve roots have to be very long and travel a good ways down before being able to exit their foramina. Is there an end in sight? That would be the sacral hiatus. It's formed because the lamina and spinous processes of the lower sacral vertebrae do not fuse. Clinically, this is a really important location because it's the site of access for the sacral canal in a caudal epidural nerve block. And with the end of the vertebral canal, we have reached the end of the clinically relevant material from lab one. We know this is a lot to take in right now, but just take your time and work through the material at your own pace. We hope you found this episode helpful and tune into next week's episode focusing on the deep back lab.